Welcome to the Israel Conversation by Massah Leadership and Impact Center, the content engine behind Massah Israel Journey. We bring contemporary, challenging, and compelling Israel issues to light in ways that help us stay connected with what's really going on on the ground. I am your host, Michael Anderberg, here with co-host... Liel Zahavi Asa. How's it going, Liel? Great. How are you? Good. Thank God. Uh, tonight, we have guest, our colleague, Kalev. How's it going, Kalev? Good. Good. How are you both? Good, thank God. I'm good. It's nice to see you. Yeah, nice you've had a busy uh, commuting day getting around Israel by train and such. Israel's um, transportation finest. Oh yeah, no logistical problems there. Uh, but we're happy to have you for this sort of. We're going to do a potpourri news roundup episode of different things that are landing in in a, uh, in, in our news feed. I hate to say news feed because we should all be reading. I think we should be going to journalistic websites rather i almost said i keep trying not to say newspaper but we should be looking towards journalism to explain what's going on and not just trust our facebook page or whatever it is people look at today are people news even doing highlights. That anymore? news highlights whatever that is at any rate <laughs> uh there are a few stories that we want to talk about we want to talk about on the international front uh some trips by our president president herzog Two trips in particular that Kalev wanted to bring to everyone's attention. One of them I totally missed out on. Uh, and also the big tempest in a teacup of an actor not understanding what the Holocaust was, which like, that's not a big shock. And and then uh, I think more importantly for our listeners is uh, Amnesty International UK uh, officially declaring in the name of Amnesty International that Israel is an apartheid state and should be treated as such by the international community. What does that mean? So, Khalif, can you talk about these uh, diplomatic visits by President Herzog? Well, the, the good news, Mike, is that the one that you hadn't heard of hasn't taken place yet. Right. So uh, it's just been announced. So yeah, I didn't know. The, I, didn't, I missed President the announcement. Herzog was that obviously that your news feed hasn't, hasn't updated yet. Yeah. Hmm. So this past week, President Herzog was in the UAE. He was meeting, he was meeting the Crown Prince. Uh, kind of an historic historic event. The, uh, there was all sorts of things on social media about Hatikva being played in the palace. And that is significant in the sense that it, it further is a sign of strengthening relations post the Abraham Accords. The other thing that's interesting is that while the visit was taking place, um, the Houthis, which is one of the, the groups um, that is fighting the civil war in Yemen, fired a missile at the United Arab Emirates was knocked out of the sky by a kind of Iron Dome uh, equivalent. And it's relevant because Israel and the UAE kind of find themselves on the same side fighting against Iran and its, its militias. And in some ways, it was an opportunity for Israel then to kind of come out in support of the UAE. I'm sure conspiracy so theorists think that that was, uh, that was a false flag, you know, something to show. It, it symbolically works out very well. For, for both Israel and the UAE. Yeah, they, they did it before Herzog's visit as well. Yeah, um, yes. But I think what's interesting for the UAE is, is that the UAE has reached out to Iran. Um, mm -hmm. The National Security Advisor, who I think might be the king's, uh, the king's brother, um, met, went to Tehran in the last couple of months. So, you know, they, they do want to keep, although they're, very, they're, they're increasingly close to Israel, they do want open channels with Iran. I mean, it's, it's literally the neighbor. Um, so that's significant and interesting. And the thing that I think was just announced today is that Herzog in March, I think, will be visiting 
Turkey. And Israel has had very mixed relations with Turkey in in the 90s. We were very, very close very back close. in the day, yeah. And then as Turkey became more uh, Islamist in nature, those relations were frayed. And then Erdogan, the president, increasingly took a, a kind of very active pro-Palestinian um, and anti-Israel line, was very, very critical of Israel and relations have frayed and Turkey's not in not in such a great place in the region. It's involved in a lot of places. It's involved in northern Iraq. It's involved in Syria. It's involved in Libya um, without really succeeding in translating its military um, interests into political gains. It is not in favour in Washington at all. And I think in some ways it's looking for... Um, I don't want to say a way out, but a way to improve its uh, its status. And, and I guess, luckily for us, one of the ways that countries seem to be able to do that is uh, by getting closer to Israel. So what exactly will come of that is unclear. Turkey houses Hamas. It's, it's very, very much in, in kind of that um, Muslim Brotherhood type camp. Um, but it is uh, uh, an important step that Herzog is going I, th- I think that what you're seeing are signs of a in a multipolar world, where you don't have a superpower or a couple of superpowers. Everybody's trying to hedge their bets. So you saw Erdogan sort of move away from the West, and then now he's moving back towards the West to sort of hedge his bets to see whose side to be on. It's similar to what you were describing, I think, with the UAE. No, it's and, fascinating because yeah. because he's also you know again Erdogan is Mr. Muslim Brotherhood. Mm-hmm. And over the last six months or so, he's reached out to Egypt. Mm-hmm. You know, he, you know, Sisi is is it's it's the, the military that the, ultimate the, the, enemy um, the, yeah. that destroyed the Muslim Brotherhood. Mm-hmm. Erdogan, I don't want to say he's friendless because it's an exaggeration, but but geopolitically, I think Turkey is increasingly isolated, and it wants to reach out to these countries that traditionally we'd say is maybe in a different camp. A lot of these countries are doing it. The Saudis were speaking to the Iranians. Mm-hmm. Everyone in some ways is hedging their bets. And again, in the background, which I think you touched on, Mike, is the at least the perception, if not the reality, but at least the perception that the American administration is less involved or interested in the region. So all of the countries are, are trying to hedge their bets. Yes, absolutely. Everybody's hedging their bets, including us, by the way. There was some. There was some anger. We have this beautiful new port built off Haifa, and it's this Chinese port. And there was some American concerns. Why are they going to China? We're in a competition. They're supposed to be our close ally. And I heard an interview with the Israeli in charge of the project, and he said, "We didn't get a single American bid. There were no American companies that bid. What do you mean we betrayed them? Like we put, we made an international opening, and only the the Chinese didn't offer a better bid. They offered the bid. America didn't. So there's this sense of a, of an American retreat." And everybody's hedging their bets. Everybody's trying to figure out. Some people out. have more more bets to hedge. Yeah, but yes, every, everyone is trying to hedge. And anything and, and and Gantz in Bahrain signing uh, defense treaties similar to Herzog in the UAE, or just part of that same Abraham Accord. And what, I think. Listen, we might now be kind of used to this. Mm-hmm. But before September 2020, this would be this would be astounding. It's this astonishing. Very, very significant, uh, significant stuff. I think you know there were, there was a kind of agreement signed with Sudan, but that's kind of fallen by the wayside. But the UAE and 
um, Bahrain and Morocco. Gans mm-hmm. has also been to Morocco. Lapid's been to Morocco. Bennett's mm-hmm. been to the UAE. Um, I would assume that sometime in, in 2022, a senior royal from the UAE will come to will come to Jerusalem. Mm. This is this is historical stuff, and, yeah, and, saw, and it's a sign of, of a change in the region. I saw an American journalist saying, "Well, look at the Israelis. All these years they've been complaining. Look at us. We're the democracy in the middle of all these." horrible dictatorships so everyone should like us and now as soon as the dictatorships like them they're like wow look at that us we're Mehdi friends Hassan, with dictatorships right? that was Mehdi Hassan yeah that was Mehdi Hassan yeah and not, not other people pointed I didn't, out I didn't, you know, I didn't know if it was worth all mentioning his name because he's not a big has relations with these countries. only Israel of course relations with these countries of course and what both things aren't true like we can be proud to be a democracy but also be happy that we have more acceptance in the region like why is that it was such a cynical that's why I didn't want to mention his name, just because why should I give him credit for almost anything? What kind, what kind of support do we think in real time, like in real time of war, in real time of whatever the the issue or the or the situation may be, what kind of support do we practically think that these countries are going to provide to Israel? Like right now, it's on paper, right? No, and I think it's, it's the reverse. It's visited as it's... Oh, Okay. I don't think they. We expect them to help us at all. I think they're making friends with us because they expect us to help them. Us to them, right? Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think it can be vice versa? I mean, Kalev, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think that the that Bahrain and the UAE have particularly impressive militaries. I think Israel is the is the is the military they're turning to for aid, not vice versa. Yeah. Just just take it in in a slightly different direction. Despite the threat, the many threats that, that face Israel. Militarily, Israel is the strongest power, militarily, economically, in all sorts of aspects, the strongest power in the region. Um, but the UAE, again, has it has serious capabilities. Um, not sure if, I'm not sure if they're going to get the F-35s from the US in the end, but they do have serious capabilities. But I think it's more this, either the strategic depth of, of having alliances um, in different areas, also closer to Iran. Um, but yes, I think militarily Israel has more to offer them than they do to Israel. But I think it's well, you know, when we compare this re- these relationships to Israel's relationship with Egypt and with Jordan, it's incomparable. You know, th- 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 this this is seeming it's it's, it's strategic, but yeah. it's it's becoming cultural as well. People are visiting. It, it, it seems warm. This is in some ways what Israelis dreamed about. Yeah, it is a little strange to me the warmth. I, I, I and I don't take that for granted at all, because the strate- look, we signed peace treaties with Jordan and Egypt, countries that we fought war with, even though we really didn't have particular enmity with Jordan, with the UAE and Bahrain. It's just normalization. We never were really at war with them, so it, okay. so it's different. But I'm I, I'm frankly really surprised at the cultural warmth. I, I really saw it as just a strategic alliance. The you know the enemy of my enemy is my friend sort of thing, which is very Middle Eastern. But you see all this public open support of Zionism and Israel and a Jewish state, and it is it is sort of dreamlike. Yeah. Okay. So let's let's jump to now what I think is probably the silliest. Thing that was in the news this week. Uh, I, I don't know why Whoopi Goldberg, I'm sure she's, it's not going to hurt her bank account too much to lose two weeks of work, but she basically claimed on her show that in a discussion over the book Mao's being banned in Tennessee schools, 
the Holocaust came up and she said that wasn't an issue. The Holocaust wasn't about racism. It was about man's inhumanity to man. And then she taped an appearance on the Colbert television show where she continued to explain along that vein that because it's not about people of different color, then it's not about race. It was white people, white people and white people fighting it out. I think that's what she said on Colbert, yeah. She was ex- also explaining that for her, race is something that can be seen. And that's it's how she skin was color. it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, and then uh, I don't know w- what got her to realize she had made a terrible mistake, but she released an apology. And then people, then they aired the Colbert interview. So many people thought she had gone back on her apology, but chronologically, apparently that's not what happened. And then... She did, in fact, it seems, express that she understood that she had made a terrible mistake. And so the next day, she had Jonathan Greenblatt, the head of the ADL, who more or less accepted her apology, and she gave him a segment to make this a learning experience to grow from. And and then ABC suspended her for two weeks after the apology. I don't really know. I, I, I don't know why we expect... I, I think, to me, what's interesting is we're seeing a flurry of non-Jews completely misunderstanding the Holocaust, whether they're comparing it to mask wearing or mask man, uh, to, to yellow stars or, well, of course they don't. A third of our people were murdered within the last century and we're very focused on it to whatever degree we are. And we think about it and we talk about it. For, for most people, once you walk out of Schindler's List for non-Jews, I don't think, you know what I mean? Like it comes up occasionally, but it's not something they've put deep thought into. And so they're going to make obnoxiously stupid you know what Robert F. Kennedy Jr. recently said. You know that now with these with these uh, mask mandates in the United States, there'll be no escape. You know, at least in Nazi Germany, you could escape. Look at Anne Frank; she could hide in an attic. Like, okay, Anne Frank died in Auschwitz. Like that's that's the son of a Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Like, come on, man. Like, but okay, so people say immensely stupid things, and I think it's nice if they apologize. I don't really know that there's more to it than that. Do you guys think there's more to it than that? I just think that it's interesting because there's there's so much talk about identity right now, I think, mm-hmm. in the culture. I think that the, what is identity and what is my identity formed from and how do I define myself is such a focal point in, in what everyone's talking about. And it's also, it, bring, it brings up the whole issue of sensitivity and I have to be sensitive because, because oh, this person may identify themselves in this way or the other way. So it also influences the way that I address people, the way that I talk, the words that I use, you know, how I express myself, things like that. So I think identity is, is sort of the center point that revolves around the entire culture and, and society right now, at least, at least in the United States. But I think that's also, it's also spreading beyond that. Um, and so the question of, well, who are the Jews and what are the Jews the Jewish question um, is right is becoming a, a focal point, and I think with again, I agree with you in the sense that I mean, probably most people in Hollywood would have said something similar to to her or something different, but just as dumb and ignorant. Mm-hmm. Um, but the fact that she did say it, and the fact that it was brought up and it was a conversation, has caused sort of this wave of like you're saying the Jewish question, and I think the reason for that and the reason that is different than than, you know, I don't know, five years ago, 10 years ago, even one year ago, right? It's because everyone's sort of obsessed, in some way sort of obsessed with this idea of identity and the concept of identity. What is identity? No, that's um, such a so great it's in- point. It's interesting. It shows how yeah, people just don't understand what Jews are or how they fit. Yeah, it's like she yeah. said Nazis were lying, saying it was race, but it was ethnicity. But Jews confuse people. 
They just don't get us. Well, I think Jews are confused and I think mm-hmm. non-Jews are confused. And I think it's just interesting that now because of this, it feels to me that we, I mean, we in our, in our classes and in our, you know, educational endeavors talk about this question all the time and, and engage mm-hmm. this question with our students. But now it almost feels to me like the world is talking about it too, uh, beyond, you know, our, you know, small Jewish circles. So that's, that's, I think. Yeah. That always ends well for us. Curious. That always goes well. <laughs> right. When well, everybody's talking about us, that always ends well. Bear, bear all right. in mind, so, yeah, Jews, as, as, as you both said, it's confusing. Are Jews a religion? Are there people? Are they a race? Are they an ethnicity? These are things that we discuss. It seems a bit unfair to expect someone else to weigh in on that in the correct way. Although I would also say professional yeah. advice, don't try mm. and make jokes about the Holocaust. Like it's just not, you, you are far more likely to uh, to get it wrong. I don't think she was making a joke. Right. I agree. But I think it also touches on. That's for sure I true. Think, but in this case, she wasn't making a joke. She was making a serious well, point. Well, maybe. Right, but, but I think that she should have known better to avoid the topic completely. On uh, the topic television. was the Holocaust. It was, it was the mouse. It was the mouse thing. Was it? Yeah. It was I it. watched it was the Reese. clip. Um, mouse. It was mouse not being taught. And so, mm-hmm. so they were talking about, you know, you have to teach kids about racism. But it, it also touches on the... Um, the Jews, it also touches on whiteness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's what that's what Liel's talking about. There's these identity issues of what is white and what is not white. And do Jews, are Jews white? Well, it depends who you ask. He addressed that, Jonathan Greenblatt addressed that the next day about Jews, you know, not seeing themselves as white. And, and you know, some anti-Semites see Jews as white and some anti-Semites see Jews, as, it, it's too white or not white enough. And all, all this is... Yeah, so David Padilla has got a very good formulation for this about kind of he uses Schrodinger's cat to say Schrodinger's white, like depending on who is mm-hmm. is is saying it for Nazis. So Jews obviously are, are are far from white, but maybe in certain progressive spaces, Jews are are super white. They're privileged. Mm-hmm. They're they're wealthy. They're all, all of these things. And but but it, it's it's complicated stuff. So Padilla is uh, the author of uh, Do Jews Count, right? British comedian, do Jews count? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, Jews don't count. Oh, is, Jews is, don't count is, is uh, the name of the book. So, so, yeah. Okay. Hmm. So we we shouldn't be surprised that other people don't quite get it. Yeah. Um, I think that's that's my personal feeling. Yeah, I agree with you. We shouldn't be surprised, yeah. and I think that when somebody says something obnoxiously stupid, to me, once they apologize and and try to make an educational change, you know, to make things better. Well, great. That's what you're supposed to do. So, I don't know. Whatever. I'm not. It's not that I'm a particular advocate of Whoopi Goldberg, but I, I don't understand the point. To me, it's disturbing that they suspended her for two weeks after she apologized. It seemed, and it wasn't. It wasn't one of these weird apologies. It was really fully stated. And then the next day, she had for the opening segment of her show. Apparently, was when they aired it because I don't know. I see these things online. Uh, Jonathan Greenblatt explaining what you know how racism was, you know, at the center of the Holocaust. So to me, I'm like, okay, great. So go back to work, and now your viewers have a better understanding. What what to me was aside from her complete misunderstanding of the Holocaust was everybody else on the panel was pretty much yelling at her. Mm-hmm. You know, it is definitely it the Holocaust agree. is definitely about race, and then she didn't back down because she she had this look. American understanding of racism is viewed through the lens of American racism and American history of racism. And she doesn't understand European racism. Okay. Yeah. And like, I agree with Kalev. Like, 
And I agree with you, Leo. That- which, which, by the way, yeah. uh, as a segue, and I don't know if you want to go there now, but the lens of race, which is so apparent in America, yeah. is also used when looking at the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, right. which is why you've got the whole Ferguson is Palestine. I mean, obviously it's not, but that, that's right. how it's seen. That, that Israelis are white and Palestinians are not white and there's brutalization just like there is in America. That's the same lens that is then brought to this territorial national conflict. Yeah. Um, but that's how many Americans see it. Well, I'm taking advantage of that segue. That was perfect, man. That was great. That, mm-hmm. you, you get to be uh, honorary host today because what we because that's you're, you're referring obviously to the Amnesty International UK spent the last how many years investigating if Israel was an apartheid state and have concluded that in fact it is. And so all nations of the world should not sell any arms to Israel and should boycott products from the West Bank and have to take action to, I guess, punish Israel into changing its behavior. And and it wasn't, and it made clear, it, it never compared Israel to South Africa because in no way does anything in Israel resemble South Africa well. But it did make clear that it wasn't just talking about Arabs in the West Bank who aren't citizens of Israel not be, not having civil or political rights, which is obviously a problem. But it claimed that Israel still uh, practicing apartheid on the people of Gaza, which I don't totally get, but also that the very creation of Israel in 1948 imposes apartheid on the Arabs who live here a very strange a few hundred couple hundred pages report why did it take them so long to figure this out what, what was that story i don't i don't know I, honestly and and maybe this is me being cynical i i, I think it, it's really hard to legitimately call israel an apartheid state but if you're but in the human rights community uh, something with noble purpose in other words People complain, oh, why is Amnesty International complaining about this? Well, that's their job. And if they want to call out problems in the West Bank, like, go for it. Like, they should. That's their job. But this whole thing, first of all, we're now going to use this word because of its magical property and what it means in international perception. And we're going to spend all this time, and it really doesn't fit. It's a round peg in a square hole. but they knew that but they must have known from the beginning that that's what it was part of the issue is what other countries are being investigated to see if they're apartheid is china which is rounding up uyghurs and putting them in concentration camps is that an apartheid state has amnesty international uk done an investigation to, is uh, uh i mean the, the apparently the only other country they say is is myanmar which committed genocide against the rohingya which i don't think is apartheid either i don't think genocide it's apartheid. I, it's it's getting into, I think, Orwellian distortions of language that don't do anyone any good. It certainly doesn't help Palestinians in the West Bank or Israeli Arabs, many of whom, including Israeli politicians who are saying, what the heck are they talking about? Like, And you're even seeing it on social media as, a, as an Arab Christian in Israel. I don't know what they're talking about. As an Arab Muslim in Israel, I don't know what they're talking about. It's certainly not true. So why go through all of this investigation just to come out the other side by saying Israel's an apartheid state and then have the repercussions of that be, okay, so let's boycott Israel. Like, why not just boycott Israel? 
Well, they're not it, saying the, the world should boycott Israel. They're saying Israel, the world should boycott the West Bank, which nobody's ever explained to me how you do. <laughs> I mean, it seems Israel to me does... that it's a lot of work that they went through in order to just do something that a lot of other people have already done and said and acted upon. Well, that's part of it. It follows the Human Rights Watch announcing that Israel's an apartheid state, the Israeli Human Rights Organization, B'Tselem, announcing Israel's an apartheid state. Mm-hmm. So what kind of human rights organization are you going to be if you don't join the call of singling out Israel as an as a an apartheid state. You're just not. When reporters ask them why is this report on Israel and not on other countries, they said, "Well, I mean, this is what the human rights community is talking about, so that's why we did it." Which is not a very objective standard for creating this investigation, but that's really what it is. Like they 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 said the quiet part out loud. Like it's just, just this is the fashion now, and we have to. This is what we're doing in the community now. So I think for, for those interested, <clears throat> there's a very good interview that uh, Laser Berman did uh, in the Times of Israel. I didn't maybe we can add it to the sure. to the show notes or, or, or something. And also, Bicom put out a report um, which I was also involved in. Um, and one of the concepts that that, that uh, Bicom uses is is decontextualize in order to demonize. Mm-hmm. So as I'm reading the report, there's all sorts of things there. And then Israel conquered territory in 1948. And then in a war in 1967, mm-hmm. it annexed. And you're thinking... Gee, I wonder why mean? Israel Just, started that war in 1948 yeah, I mean, that, that, you, you take out context. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there was another thing that actually NGM wanted to pointed out, that Amnesty talked about these four Jerusalem residents um, who'd had their residency revoked. And NGM wanted to basically work out that it was four Hamas members. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's all of these things that are, that are decontextualized in order to demonize Israel. And, and as I was reading it, I thought, wow, you, you might even think that there was never any attempt to end the occupation of the West Bank. There were never any negotiations. There were never any Israeli offers or American bridging proposals with Clinton or Annapolis or Obama. So you take out the context and, and it reads absolutely terribly. Um, I think I think there's a few things there. Firstly, I think you know, the, the the ongoing occupation of the West Bank is a huge problem, and it and it it generates all sorts of of abuses. And then the question is, okay, so how do we what do we do with that? How do we end it? Um, how do we find a Palestinian partner? How do we find an Israeli partner? How do you convince the Israeli public that Hamas, just like they did in Gaza, isn't going to take over, isn't going to fire rockets uh, onto Tel Aviv, etc.? And and that really, right. for me, is the framing. How, how do you deal with all of these things, with Palestinian historical rejectionism, um, with all sorts of things? That that really is, is the framing. I would push back and a little bit, Colleen. I would push back and say, I don't know that it's even Amnesty International's job to tell us what the solutions are. In other words, their job is to call it out and say, this is a problem, this is a problem, this is a problem. And to a certain extent, Israelis ignore that because Israelis then say, in other words, I don't know, uh, not being a professional in the human rights observation community world, I don't know that the obligation of them is to have the political, legislative, policy, security, wherewithal to suggest a solution. But they're the people who are always reminding us of the problem. And we Israelis, it ends up going into the background of our heads because we know it's a problem. What are we supposed to do about it? And that's why we tend to tune them out. And I I don't think that to me, at least in my, for a lot of people who love Israel, that means that these organizations don't have legitimacy because they're talking about the problem and not the solution. And to me, I always say, well, I don't know that that's their job, 
but it does recede to the back of my head as I get it. Thanks for reminding me. I don't know what to do about it. But this crosses a different line. This is, as you say, this is demonization. This is Israel from its inception. You're telling me Israel from 48 by its existence is an apartheid creation when Arabs are freer in this state than any other state in the Middle East or North Africa and have more political, social, and civil rights and and are successful in Israeli business and entertainment and government and judiciary. I mean, it's, it's, it's such an appalling demonization that it delegitimizes Amnesty International, an organization I used to have some respect for. And it not only does nothing to help the problem, it just compounds it. It just makes helping Palestinians further, further off into the future. Because nations around the world, not only America, European nations, Germany, came out with a statement that this report is garbage. So, so you've just given your own organization. What are, are you trying to make a difference in the diplomatic treatment of Israel in the world? Did you do that, or did you just make a bunch of nations in the world say Amnesty International UK just put out a garbage report? So, what, what, just productively, are you so? Are, are these people so inside their own little uh, echo chamber that they think they're going to make things better by lying and by calling out the real deep truth under it's this. It's this thing, and it's so much an influence of BDS approach of I'm going to exaggerate and distort to make it sound so much worse, which in the end, it's oversale. Do you ever get a salesman who pushes too hard? So you walk out, but the salesman who says, look, here are the problems, here's the things, you can buy it in another store. And you're like, well, that's, and to me, that's responsible language of these organizations. And to, to, to besmirch your reputation as liars and demonizers and decontextualizers in, in the name of a political battle against one state. It's it's a bad day for, for the democratic... Look, South Africa, they didn't even have the guts to compare Israel to South Africa, where white citizens and black citizens in South Africa had different legal statuses and were treated differently under the law and couldn't live in the same cities. And more and more, and, and and didn't have the same political or civil rights. Whereas Israeli citizens, one out of every five Israeli citizens is an Arab and is equal under the law. And if the report wants to complain that as minorities they have issues of discrimination, okay, what democracy doesn't have issues with minorities face? That's not apartheid. Like it's just turning the word into this magical totem, stamping it and saying that's why Israel's the bad guy. Everybody hate Israel. It's so. I, I, I have deep contempt for the whole project. Well, yeah. Well, the question is if they're right, they're a human rights organization or they're in their own echo chamber of the other human rights organizations. The question is if they don't call Israel, Israel an apartheid state and if they don't demonize Israel, is that more harmful to them as an organization than not? Because well, I understand uh, your point of making a fool out of themselves, essentially, right? I, I, I guess I would have... I guess I... I would have thought that a human rights organization priority should be human rights of people who are suffering and not your own organization's reputation among other human rights mm-hmm. organizations. And I, I think if you believe in, in in liberty and freedom and human rights, then honest reporting should be part of what you do. I, I really... But this rhetoric is on is on the rise. Um, yeah. You know, we, we started with Salem, Human Rights Watch... Amnesty, I'm sure one of the random 
um, uh, commissions in in the UN during 2022 will also come out with mm-hmm. something. So, you know, there's an ongoing question, how, how important is this? To me, it's an extremely unhelpful and wrong way of looking at the present and the past. And it's also extremely unhelpful looking at the future because if something's yeah. apartheid, it needs to be completely dismantled. Yeah. Um, and I, I saw on Twitter uh, um, kind of this Palestinian analyst uh, saying that partition is a sign of apartheid. Mm-hmm. Mm. So, you know, now you get to a stage where what are we, you know, when you look to try and resolve or at least alleviate the situation, well, what tools are we're not even allowed to, to partition. The, partitioning is two apartheid. Two states is so apartheid, right? Two states is now apartheid because it's 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 an example of demographic demographic uh, superiority uh, or, or whatever. So not only does it does it misrepresent the past, but it, it sets up this. It's it's similar to settler colonialism. If 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 this is a nationalist conflict between two peoples, both of whom have legitimate claims on the land, then. The, the 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 model of resolving it is partitioning the land in some way. If it is apartheid of one group dominating the other uh, in an immoral system or settler colonialism, then then the solution in inverted commas is to completely dismantle that state. And so, if that's your model, that will then be your preferred solution. And if that's your preferred solution, we're not going to get very far. So not only do I think it, it misrepresents the past, but it's also extremely unhelpful for trying to advance some sort of um, better future between Israelis and But I and think they've convinced themselves that this is the truth and that is the goal and that the goal is achievable, that one day you will have a single state with majority Arabs that will be a democracy. You know, how you get from here to there is impossible if you understand anything about what's actually happening in the world. But that's sort of where they are. They're like, no, we're going to get there. We're going to dismantle. Everybody's going to become a citizen of this one beautiful democracy, and it'll be like America. That's in their head. That's their goal. It's just appallingly stupid, and and I, and and therefore pernicious. And it's 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 giving energy to the Palestinian rejection of the Jewish identity of the state, which the report claims to accept, but clearly undermines with its recommendations, threatening, in fact, the security of Israelis. Are you going to change Israeli behavior with pronouncements like this? And and the whole, you know, oh, well, it, now it, it partitions apartheid. Okay. Apartheid is not a magic word that once you apply it, a bunch of things, take out the word apartheid. What are the problems? How do we solve them? The very idea in, in this, you know, world of cancellation, that now we're going to cancel Israel because it has a label. The label doesn't apply very well, but it applies enough that we think that we can use that label now. Okay. I, I think it's part of the unraveling of the post-Enlightenment world order into this world of branding and identity and sides and tribes rather than an honest deliberation over how to... Uh, uh, here are the facts we ex- we. Ex- we have agreed upon facts, and now let's talk and deliberate over how to make that useful. Amnesty International's job was, we are the people, you're not going to know the facts if we're not there looking at human rights abuses. So we're telling you what those facts is. Now countries of the world look into that, and you decide what to do about it. And now what they're saying is countries of the world don't pay attention to us because we're just liars. I think it also plays into this, um, I don't know, 
this uh, I guess the culture that we have where the online culture where we anyone can just get online and say whatever they they're thinking in that moment. And in terms of actually acting on what you say um, or having any consequences to what you say, there isn't much. Anyone can just publicly make this very grandiose statement. Um, and I think it plays into that as well of like, okay, we're going to call Israel an apartheid state. No, but, but the, what, what super frustrates me is this isn't anybody. This is an organization mm-hmm. devoted to calling it. So they were the people I was right. supposed to be able to turn to to say what's really happening. And if, and if, you know, and if my, my Israeli tour guide tells me that nothing bad happens in the West Bank, I should be able to look to Amnesty International for a better report. Mm-hmm. I should be able to look to B'Tselem for the mm-hmm. full report of what's really going on. And there are bad things. And there are things that should concern me as a citizen. But at this point, I can't listen to them anymore because they're they're not just the idiot tweeting. They're the organization that is supposed to get me the truth. And now I can't rely on them. And 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 so the right, under- because they've succumbed to the idiotic tweeting yeah. culture. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to know what the truth is. And that's and that's that's a problem that our students often complain about. Where do we go to find out what's really happening? And the systems designed to help us with that. Journalism, Well, going NGOs. back to what you were saying. Yeah, Joel, going back to what you were saying at the beginning of this podcast uh, about, you know, going to journalism instead of going to the headlines in our newsfeed. But I think, I think it's a lot of, it's a question that a lot of people are asking themselves. Yeah. Like, including our students, but also, other, like, also, I, I ask myself that all the time. Like, where, yeah. where do we get yeah. that, you know? The truthful journalism and the the accurate sources. Well, if I want news about France, I'm not going to read an American newspaper. And if I want to know about America, I'm not going to read a French newspaper. And if I want to know about Israel, I have to read Israeli news. I My go-to first is the one Kalev mentioned earlier, Times of Israel, but that and other organizations and, and, and multiple sources. It's still There's still a difference between a journalist with an editorial oversight, which can still get things wrong and still have bias, than just listening to any idiot tweet from their uh, from their belly, as my bubby would say, from their boya. I think on the social media point, I think there's something very powerful, especially for the young people, uh, and and currently with TikTok, let's just it might as well bring that that into the to the story because I think it's very effective when you have somebody who's who's literally in in wherever the news is taking place, they're in the center of it and they're posting and they're and they're you know, videoing mm-hmm. whatever it is that they're seeing and talking about it sort of firsthand. And I think there's something very, very also convincing, but also you want to rely on that person because, hey, they're in mm-hmm. the center of the event and they're they're sharing it live before any journalist relevant, had any. Yeah. yeah. And so it's 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 hard to not um, or just sort of discount that as a, as a as a news source or as an influence on how you see the story. If you're it watching, be, the I, I would video, argue that that's a, that that should be an influence that should be factored into how you see the story on site reporting, whether it makes you frustrated or it goes with supports your narrative or not. The, the people, witnesses on the scene, I think, have what to offer. But the 21st century is shaping up to uh, in very strange ways. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know what the international order is going to be. You know what? Do, what effect does this have on international diplomatic order? Take Israel and Jews out of the picture. I don't know what the future of the international order is. I don't know if this is, I mean, this un, this helps undermine its, its healthy process. You know, I, I don't know how strong are the liberal democracies that, that, that are promoting, I don't know. But I know that most leaders of most countries are not interested in 
certainly in the West, uh, in boycotting Israel. And as we talked about earlier in the episode, a, a growing number of Arab states are moving closer to Israel and hedging their bets. And so mm-hmm. I, I really don't know. And I, I, I don't think it's good to be overly pessimistic or overly optimistic. It's good for us to keep our eyes open, listen to smart people like Kalev who can help explain it to us and give us some insight and understanding and, and pay attention, which is really what we try to do here. Is that a good plan? I guess. Kalev, it's all about you, man. (laughs) All right. So now that we have the the survival of... Now we have a plan. Our plan is Western civilization should listen to Kalev and in moving forward. You can handle it. You got the shoulders for it. All right. Well, thank you so much. I know it's been a long day. We really appreciate you uh, helping us out. We just need, we really needed some insight into those bigger pictures. And that's what we always get from you. So we really appreciate it. And uh, thank you, Liel. Thanks. And we don't have to stop the Zoom, but it's the end of episode, so I'm stopping the recording. Bye-bye. Now that we're part of Masa, we decided to add a cool new segment to each episode. We're going to call the Masa Moment. There are so many people having amazing experiences here in Israel, and we just wanted you to feel part of it and know what's going on. So enjoy this week's Masa Moment. The Masa Moment of the Week is Jonathan's and MITF alumni's reflection on teaching English in Ashdod. He shared with us the following. When you are teaching something like English outside of an English-speaking country, your students are gaining opportunities to a world with endless possibilities. At the beginning of our MITF year, the Minister of Education came to speak to us to highlight the impact we were going to have on the students. For them, learning English gives them the access to infinite more opportunities, where in a city like Ashdod, small and insular, the students can't always allow themselves to ask the question, how can I go out and make an impact on the world? The MITF fellows become an integral part of the student's success in the future. Teaching also made a big impact on me personally. Leading a class helped build my confidence in social skills. It also helped my communication skills as I had to learn to cooperate with the teachers of the school despite the language barrier. It also really helped build my character, and for that, I am forever grateful. Masa Israel Journey is dedicated to shaping a promising future for the young Jewish individual, the global Jewish community, and the connection to the State of Israel. Masa offers life-transforming, long-term opportunities in Israel that allows fellows to create their own future. Check out MasaIsrael.org for more info.